So um, my voice tends to be soft, and then it tends to get very strong when I chant, so it changes a lot. But some people have a hard time hearing me. So if anyone has a hard time hearing me, there's a couple of seats open in the front, and I know it's very scary coming and sitting in the front. But it's it's a worthwhile thing not having to struggle with hearing if if because it's frustrating when you when you're struggling with hearing. So if there's anyone who would like to move, you're welcome to come up front. And I promise not to be too scary. At least for a little while. <laughs> You're all happy where you are. Okay, that's fine. Well, welcome everyone. Um, here we are about to begin a, a 10-day retreat and I have two Sangha friends with me, uh, Sister Santajita and Anagarika Paresh. And uh, it's always lovely to have Sangha um, joining on retreat. For the many years when I was teaching in Australia, and yeah, I, I didn't have Sangha presence with me it's just myself so it's a it's a very lovely thing having others joining in and it's quite likely that there'll be various different um, uh, nuns or maybe Anagarikas joining during the retreat for the evening talk they'll just come and have a seat and then disappear Um, that's just it'll be okay but here here we all are and about to begin a 10-day retreat and I I imagine that for each of you it's quite a journey getting your life organized to have 10 days to come. And so there's usually a kind of a huge task of of uh, organizing things so that you can have 10 days free for this kind of a practice. And it is a, a special time. Um, it's a time where there's an enormous amount of care being put into setting up the right conditions so that we can support our practice. Uh, we have a, a lovely crew who are cooking for us and managing the retreat. And Josh has been out and around mowing everything so that the lawns and the paths are nice and tidy and that we don't have to hear the lawnmowers while the retreat's going on. And, you know, they've been hours looking after the flowers and making sure that they're properly arranged and checking everyone in and organizing menus and things so that there's an, quite a lot of care that goes into setting up a retreat like this to make it conducive for everyone so that we can relax and just attend to what's happening in our practice and how we're relating to it. So within this retreat, as is often the case, we have a large spectrum, a large mixture. There are people here who I know and have known for many years and have been meditating probably longer than I have been. And then there's a whole spectrum of people who've been meditating for a, a, a middle-length time. And then there's people who are reasonably new to the whole thing. And so it's often the case that we have a retreat like this and there's a mixture of seasoned practitioners and middle ones and young ones. And none of it's a problem. All of it's okay. So the young ones are struggling because they don't know anything and it's new. And the middle ones are struggling because they don't know anything and it's new. And the senior ones are struggling because they don't know anything and it's new. And and here we all are. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're basically all in the same boat, really. You know, even though we might be very familiar with the process 
for many of us, it's an unknown process we enter into just to be open to what arises and how we're going to relate to it. And so we just, there needs to be a learning how to relax into that and around that and soften with that and, and bring about the right attitudes and the right intention, the right effort to creating an environment which is conducive for resting, relaxing, and awakening. So, um, you know, it's worthwhile considering, well, why are you here? Why did you come? You know, what is your intention? What do you hope? What do you expect? What do you think might happen? And just just take a moment just to check in and see, well, why are you here now? You know, what, what brought you here? What, what you hope might happen. And it's helpful on the onset just to have a sense of that. You know, why, why are you here? What do you want? What don't you want? You know, what are you hoping might happen? So that it's, it's clearly registered that that's there. And then, and then with as much, um, Intention is possible. Just leave it aside. Let it be. And just open up to see what happens. So it's not that we can't have what we want, but that's not what we're focusing on. We're just going to put that aside and, and see if we can allow what arises to be what it is and find the right relationship with it as it comes. Now, there are many people who have been meditating here for many, many, many years. But sometimes it's still helpful just to consider, well, what is meditation? You know, what is it about? Why do we do it? And for me, you know, meditation is, is uh, really about two things. The one thing that it's about is learning how to bring a sense of balance into our, our minds and our bodies and learning to bring a sense of of um, balance into the various different things that we experience. And so in that endeavor, it's useful to learn how to connect with the present moment, to settle. It's useful to learn how to brighten the mind and energize the body. It's important to learn how to relax. It sounds funny, but we actually need to make an effort to relax. It's important to learn how to work with the various things that each one of us experiences. So some of us are our favorite. Our favorite uh, top ten includes a different list than somebody else. So for some, there's a struggle with 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 doubt. With other, it's energy. With some, it's a sense, a deep-seated sense of lack, a lack of of feeling confident, or a lack of feeling safe, or a lack of feeling sense of belonging. For others, it's a, a very strong sense of, of ill will that comes or greed that comes and knocks us off our seat, knocks us out of balance. And there isn't a better one to have than another one. They all come, they all go, and you know, many of us share many of these. They change. But for each of us, we'll have particular habits and patterns that are habitual things that repeat, things that we're used to, ways that we define ourselves, 
belief systems we hold about ourselves. And so in endeavoring to bring about this first aspect of meditation, it's helpful to get a sense of what these are and what are ways, tools, strategies, skillful means that we can bring to them to help them to release, to soften, to get some perspective around them. So that there's a a more of a sense of ease and well-being and balance and less a sense of being driven by habits and patterns and views and ideas of what we think we are or what somebody else is or what the world is. And within this, there's a huge amount of effort and work and skill that can be developed and cultivated. I mean, just learning how to be connected to the present moment is a skill. Learning how to allow the mind to settle, the body to settle, to brighten the body, to use the breath in a way which which rejuvenates and renews. It's a skill. And it's a useful skill. It's useful to have some degree of choice in how we are relating to what is happening and ways of bringing things into balance. It's a useful skill. But skills have their limitations. And no matter how adept we are at developing skills of meditation, there will be times when life is not in our control. And it seems like our meditation practice has failed when life is not in control and we're not able to bring things into balance. But the real problem is not that our meditation and practice has failed, but that our meditation practice is too limited in its scope. Because when we consider meditation to be about developing certain techniques and bringing about balance, then it presupposes that we are able to bring a sense of control and balance into everything. And that's not correct. There are times when we can't bring balance and there's times when we can't bring it into control. And we experience that with profound loss. We experience that with grave illness. We experience that with many things which are not in our control. And so if our whole endeavor around meditation is about balance and technique and bringing things into control, then sooner or later we're, we're up against a wall or we're up a creek without a paddle. And we suffer enormously. But if we open up the field of meditation to include the awareness of things as they are, being with things as they are, changing our reference point from identifying with the contents of our experience to resting in the awareness that knows experience, then things can come and go. They can be out of control. And we can know out of control as an object of meditation, like we know the breath and we know the body and we know sight and sound and taste and touch. And there needs to be absolutely no problem about it being completely and totally and utterly out of control.
But in order to allow attention to rest in just knowing, for many of us, not everyone, but for many of us, it's actually helpful to develop a certain degree of settledness and connectedness and stillness, a sense of right intention not to harm, a sense of being able to connect with our own goodness. And these are all supportive conditions just for allowing the mind to rest in awareness in that which knows. So I, I imagine, though I never plan these things, so I'm not quite sure, that probably what will happen for the first several days is we'll follow the format of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, develop uh, a sense of uh, the first, second, third, foundation and then the, around the fourth foundation of mindfulness also we'll, we'll work a little bit with, with not meditating we, we pull the carpet out from underneath everyone's feet and I come in and I tell you stop meditating stop it stop it and just to see the way our, our minds get habituated into making meditation into a project and, and that there's an actually something that we're doing. And so we'll, we'll change focus and learn or have more, um, encouragement just to rest. Just to rest. Just to rest. Just to rest in the knowing. Just to rest in the knowing. Now in my own experience over a few years now, these things are constantly moving back and forth. And there are times when it's really helpful to pick up tools and sharpen them and find their edges and learn how they cut and shear and hold. And and there's times for putting them down. And even in the course of a one particular retreat, there can be times for picking up tools and for putting them down. So even though this retreat is situated where you're all looking at me, I'm supposed to be the teacher... I'm supposed to be the one who talks, and hopefully I will manage to do a sufficient amount of that. It's actually your retreat. It's not my retreat. It's your retreat. And so if there's anything that is helpful is to learn to trust your own wisdom, to trust yourselves and to learn how to pick up the teachings in a way where you can begin to offer yourself the feedback and the discernment and the, the support that is needed for the practice to unfold. Because as much as I would like to be of support, the amount of support that I can genuinely be will be limited. And what is most helpful is if you can find a way to access the support within. The intuition, the trust, the confidence, the discernment within. So on that note, just know that everything I say is an offering And I would be very cross if you believed anything that I say. 
Because what I'm asking for you to do is to listen inwardly and check and see if what I'm saying actually resonates with your own understanding. Is it true for you? And if it's true for you, then it's your truth. So I speak and I'll talk about all kinds of things. Some of them you'll like, some of them you won't like. That's fine. There's no problem with that. If I speak in a way that goes against your deepest understanding of what the truth is, then at some point it's important that you feed back to me that. You let me know that. Because this is a very sacred arrangement we have here with an enormous amount of goodwill and intention that has gone into setting this up. And it is based on a commitment each one of us needs to have for maintaining and protecting the sacredness of this situation. And that involves one's own commitment to truth. So if I say something that you don't resonate with, just leave it. If I say something you don't agree with, there's no need for you to take it on board. But if I say something that goes against your deepest understanding of what the truth is, don't leave it. Don't take it on board. Make sure you find a suitable and appropriate time to, to speak to me about it. I speak extemporaneously and I don't prepare the talks. And there are times when my own personal story or my own personal material is the way that I'm speaking. And it will naturally be colored by where I am in my own journey. And it also can be covered with the degree of clarity or the degree of confusion that I experience. So if I speak in a way which is from confusion, lack of clarity and is touching something that is deeply untrue for you, don't just ignore it and be polite. Please, it's not helpful. So we have an arrangement. And basically what's happening is is that there's a monologue apparently happening. I'm the one that's speaking. But in reality, there is a perfect dialogue where everyone, when you're listening correctly, you're spending 90% of your attention attending to your own interior experience with where things are landing and resting in you. And 10% of your attention is on what I have to say. So that there's a complete, total, responsive interaction that's happening here. So unfortunately, the seating arrangement seems to indicate that I'm the one who's talking and you're the one that's listening and I've got the answers and you don't. And that's not helpful. But I don't have a way of changing the seating arrangement that actually reflect what's actually happening here, which is that each one of us are in relationship with ourselves, with me and with each other. Now, one of the things that's really helpful on a retreat is to establish the refuges and the precepts as a beginning part of of a retreat so that everyone's on the same page about what we're about and the kind of degree of safety and the standards that we keep. And for myself, 
I like to look at this as a an opportunity for um, not only exterior levels of behavior, but interior ways of relating. So when we start with the three refuges, we start with the refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And for many people who are traditional Buddhists, the Buddha represents a human being who lived 2,550 years ago. But for those of us who were not born Buddhists, that might be not so easy to feel comfortable with. But what the Buddha represents, whether he was a physical human being that lived, or whether the quality of Buddha is something that we want to take refuge in, is that quality of being awake. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in that which is awake. That which knows. It's not an intellectual knowledge. It's a knowledge that transcends the intellect. Transcends but includes the intellect. When we take refuge in the Dhamma, we take refuge in the truth of the way things are. What's happening right now? Right now, what's happening for you right now? Are you tired? Are you interested? Are you a little bit sore? Is it a little bit blurry because it's been a long day? The truth of the way things are. There's also a whole vast array of teachings that relate to the truth of the way things are. And when we take refuge in the Sangha, we're not only taking refuge in the monks and the nuns, we're taking refuge in the aspiration to awaken, which all of us have. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't be here. So it's a a collective field that has gone before us. It is present with us now. And I suspect will extend into the future. The refuge of the Sangha is the collective aspiration to awaken. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, immediately we are connecting to something that's vastly larger than our own personal story of what's happening to me in my life. It's really helpful to remember that from the very beginning. That's what we're actually connecting to. And then we have the eight precepts. So the first of the eight precepts is to refrain from killing. And I would suspect that for most people that's actually not an issue. We don't need to worry about I guess, somebody killing each other on the retreat. Thinking about killing somebody is a different story. 
actually doing it is something that I don't think anybody needs to worry about. But when we take this precept into its internal application and its subtler form, it has to do with non-harming on all levels, to refrain from harming on any level at all. And if the only thing that happens during the entire retreat is that there is a movement towards non-harming, a commitment, a steadfast, determined commitment to non-harming, then I would have considered it a vastly successful retreat. It is staggering the ways in which harming takes place, both in terms of the way we relate to other people, but primarily the way we relate to ourselves. The belittling, the condemning, the judging, the demanding, the complaining. And if we, in our taking the precept to refrain from killing and refrain from harming, we make a commitment to refrain from this whole spectrum It's a very powerful thing to do. Very powerful. The second precept is to refrain from taking anything which is not given. And so people can relax. Your own personal belongings belong to you and nobody needs to pick them up. If somebody leaves something, it can be brought to the retreat managers and they can sort out what to do with it. You know, the food is offered at the meal time and there's more than enough. We don't need to worry about helping ourselves to things in the refrigerator between times. You know, we're welcome to use the soap that's in the bathrooms, but, you know, people's personal belongings belong to them, and the retreat belongings we have access to when we need, we can ask. The food is offered. It's fairly straightforward and uncomplicated. But on a deeper level, it has to do with with asking for that which is not offered. And so oftentimes when we sit with, with, with achy knees and, and grumbly, sleepy minds, you know, we're just hoping, waiting for, the, for the, the big experience when it all is the way it should be, you know, which is, which is a way of grasping for something which is not offered. What offered is what's happening in the present moment. That's what's offered. And can we accept that? Can we just receive that? Can we just be with that? The third precept has to do with refraining from any kind of uh, intentional sexual activity. And again, this is a, a very powerful precept because a lot of our conditioned habits and behaviors has to do with positioning ourselves as sexual beings in relationship to each other. And it's so deeply ingrained, a lot of the time it's just it goes unnoticed. So when we have a clear commitment to refrain from any kind of intentional sexual activity, then we know that we don't need to worry about ourselves as sexual beings in relationship to another. And what that does is it gives permission to learn to feel completely at ease with what it is to be a person in a human body that has sexuality. Now, as it turns out, for most of us, this is not a small journey. 
feeling comfortable and at ease and relaxed in our sexuality is a, is a very big journey. And there are many reasons why it is rich and complicated and highly charged. But when we take the precept to refrain from sexual activity, we are not cutting this energy. We are creating a, a space where this can be fully understood and known, where we can come into full awareness and full allowing without having it spill out and having it be something that needs to be interacted with in a relational sense with somebody else. So it is a complete giving permission of sexuality rather than a denial, a suppression, or a not allowing of. It's very important to understand that because this is a powerful force of energy. And if somehow in our understanding about celibacy we have switched off at the mains, then sooner or later we are going to realize that our life force is affected, our hearts are affected, our energy is affected, our meditation practice is affected. So it's not about switching off. It's about creating a sense of appropriate boundaries to fully embrace, accept, allow. And the full spectrum of all that that means and the kind of confusion and shame and fear and intensity and delight that comes with that. The fourth precept has to do with uh, speech. And in a, in a kind of non-retreat situation, correct speech has to do with not, not engaging in speech, which is um, divisive, gossiping, harsh, uh, or untrue. And in a retreat context like this, you know, it's a context that's held in noble silence. And so silence ends up being a supportive container for us being able to connect with our own experience because the habits that are often associated with speech are so deep and so quick that it's sometimes difficult to pay attention to all that arises when we're speaking. And so silence ends up being a useful tool. The problem is, is that we turn it into a mystical object and then put it on a shrine and bow to it and then we've got the wrong relationship with it. So it's not sacred in and of itself. It's a tool that's useful for a deeper inquiry. The silence does not mean that we disconnect from each other. It's helpful sometimes not to look people in the eyes because that's very evocative. But it doesn't mean that we disconnect from each other. We feel each other. We feel each other's presence. But how can we be with each other and living around each other and moving around each other where we're not needing to evoke story or dialogue? We can sense it. We can feel it. But we're not needing to verbalize it. 
We don't need to know the specifics of a person's life in order to feel the actuality of their presence. It's not requiring a verbal response, but a heart one, a feeling. Now, within that, there's this whole spectrum of writing and notes and reading and all the rest of that. And there's books all over the place. And all the books are filled with all kinds of wisdom. And the wisdom is sound. And I'll probably be doing some reading from the um, the, sutta, the, the Satipatthana Sutta. But if it's possible, the most important book for you to read is this one. This is where the truth is. This is where the long and the short and the middle and the connected discourses are. It's all here. Okay? And so some people read because it supports their practice. Some people read as a distraction and diversion from what's actually happening because it's painful to be what's happening. Yeah? So when that's happening... You know, the encouragement is not to read. But because what's important on this retreat is that people begin to learn to trust themselves. Trust that you know what you need to do. Trust that you know what your intentions are. Then rather than me say, do this and don't do that, and don't read and don't take notes and don't talk, it's better if you find and listen inwardly to, is the reading actually conducive for your practice? Trust that more than don't read. So rather than have fixed guidelines, they are, they are soft, reflective containers through which each one needs to take responsibility for your own practice. What's happening for you? How are you relating to it? What are you doing? Is it useful? Is it not useful? The fifth precept has to do with uh, refraining from drink and drugs. And again, in a situation like this, unless you've got a stash somewhere, it's a little bit rough. I mean, <laughs> there's, not, there's not much on tap here at Amravati. But on another level, I know for myself, you know, for me, there's an intoxication with certain high states of mind. Intoxicated. You know, I used to call myself a bliss junkie. I used to love to get into, you know, exalted states of mind and just get off on it. Because exalted states of mind are often a lot more interesting than just what's happening right now. And so, as, a, as an internal reflection, it has to do with, you know, how are we actually um, uh, addicted to certain things? Addicted to experiences of stillness and quiet and concentration. Addicted to experiences of, of energy flowing and fluidity. And so from that perspective, from an internal perspective, there's a lot that we can do in order to put our addictions down. On the, on the fourth precept, the, the internal aspect has to do with the way we are speaking about ourselves. 
the kinds of thoughts that we have and the way we're relating to those thoughts. So there's the external aspect, which is verbalization, and these are the internal aspect, which is the thoughts that are going on and what we are doing with them, whether we're believing them or not believing them. And that itself is a whole practice. The sixth precept has to do with food and not eating after midday. And, you know, uh, for many of you who are seasoned practitioners and you're familiar with the monastery routine, you're used to that. For some people, it's a trauma not having dinner, you know, because there's just a sense that food is one of the things that we, we, we have access to. We eat whenever we like. And so just the idea of not having dinner is, is unsettling. If there are any people here who've got medical problems that you can't manage, then there's no need for you to stress. Just speak with the retreat managers and we can sort something out. The point of this is not torture. That's not the point. The point of this is actually to have as much food as we need during the first part of the day so that our digestive systems can finish, the cooking can finish, the smells can finish, the cleaning can finish, the preparations can finish. And the rest of the day can be oriented towards what's happening here. For many of us, food is a substitute for many things. It's a substitute for emotional pleasure. It's a substitute for sexual pleasure. It's a substitute for boredom. It's a substitute for all kinds of things. In fact, it's said that the only people who have the truly right relationship with food are arahants. So, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to have a right relationship with the food. And you can watch what happens in the food line, you know, at the mealtime when you know you're not going to be able to eat until breakfast time again. You know, the kind of dilemma of how much food do you need as opposed to how much food do you think you need. And so we usually eat twice or three or four times as much as we need and we end up feeling like bloated whales and we come dragging ourselves into the meditation and fall asleep. And, you know, don't give yourself a hard time. For many of us in monastic life, it takes somewhere between 10 and 20 years to work out how to eat a meal without getting it, with getting it right, you know. So if in 10 days you don't get it right, there's no need to thrash yourself and berate yourself and give yourself a hard time. Just watch. This is what's happening with food. So the seventh precept has to do with uh, beautification, adornments, um, and entertainment. And again, um, you know, there's not much happening on the big screen here at Amravati. You know, the most exciting thing that happens is the meal. You know, that it's just, it's just not an issue. Sometimes um, I've been on retreats and the retreats are fashion shows. So people change their clothes five times a day. So there's a there's the meditation fashion show that's going on as to which which outfit is the most conducive, the most cool for meditating. That's not necessary. (laughs) You know, we can take off jewelry and earrings and all the rest of that. If our bodies are covered adequately enough, it's good enough. You know, we don't need to make a fuss. But again, you can see just in something as simple as dress, there's a lot of ourselves in terms of our self-image that goes into what we wear. 
And, you know, we can just let that cool out. And then the eighth precept has to do with refraining from um, sleeping on a higher luxury sleeping place. And I've checked every single bed there. There's no such thing as a higher and luxury sleeping place. In fact, the opposite sometimes is true. You know, there are challenges. Sometimes the mattresses pose a particular challenge, a particular practice, you know. So the point of this is not um, so much about... uh, the high and luxurious has to do about having the right relationship with sleep. You know, for many of us, sleep is our drug of preference. So when we've had enough and we can't cope anymore, we just tend to zone out. It's like, goodbye, I'm out of here. And there are ways in which that's skillful and there's ways in which that's not skillful. When you're exhausted and you're tired and you need to sleep, then rest. When you're using sleep in order to avoid an escape, then Wake up to that as a pattern, as a habit. What one needs to learn is to discern what's the difference between sleep which is needed and sleep which is an avoidance. Sometimes you generally have had enough. You've been in pain and your body's aching and everything is grumbling and you've had enough and then it's time to go to bed. That's what time it is, you know. So one really needs to find a level of internal confidence to sort out Where are things coming from? And what is the right response to any particular situation? Now, some of our friends here have health problems and have said to me that they might fall asleep in the Dhamma Hall. And nobody needs to panic if somebody has fallen asleep in the Dhamma Hall. (laughs) It's quite all right. That's what happens when people's energy drops. Sometimes people fall asleep quite okay. I was giving a talk at the in the monastery and there was a man who was 98 years old who was there. Can you imagine? Amazing. And he came and sat down and immediately fell asleep. And he was he was snoring. It was this kind of lovely snoring sound and I could see that some people were agitated, you know, looking, should you poke him? Should you wake him? Should you what should you do with him? You know, he's making a noise and and he's not supposed to be making a noise. And to me, it sounded like a cat purring. It was this lovely kind of gentle, welcoming, lovely sound. So, you know, we need to watch what's happening in our own mind about what should and shouldn't be happening and relax. Just relax. There's nothing wrong with soft snoring sounds. It's quite okay. So we have the refuges and the precepts. And so maybe this is, are there any questions about anything? Is there anything that I forgot to mention? Or do you have any questions about um, anything at all that I've talked about? Is it clear enough? Yeah. Do you feel comfortable enough? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.